Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged. And your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. And thus concludes the book of Revelation. Doesn't it sound like that? I mean, you read those five verses and it sounds conclusive. Sounds like it's all come together now. This is it. This is it. And yet still got 42 months. Probably not in this study, but in in the tribulation, 42 months to go. So what is such a conclusive chapter doing right here? Seventh trumpet sounds. And we're only at the midpoint of the tribulation. Remember how the passage began. We saw back down in verse 2 that they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. There's three and a half years to go. The second woe has just passed. The sixth trumpet and now the seventh trumpet. And we just are now coming to the third woe. And because it's so conclusive, there are people who read this and they say, well, well, this must be it. At least the last trumpet. The seventh trumpet must be the last trumpet. Now, we talked about that a bit earlier on in our Revelation study. 1 Corinthians 15.52, Paul said, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The rapture of the church. Paul also talks about that in 1 Thessalonians 4. You know the passage well. Talking about the, the last trumpet being the trumpet of God. Well, this isn't the trumpet of God. This is the trumpet of an angel, right? It's an angel sounding this trumpet, not God. This is not the voice of God as with the last trumpet. But some some still connect this. Some say this is the rapture right here. This is where it happens. What they'll do with this is they'll add in the two witnesses. See, they'll go symbolic. And remember, when you go symbolic in the study of Revelation, you can make it say whatever you want. I mean, have a field day. Just remember at the end of Revelation that we're told if anyone adds to this book or takes away from this book, you're going to get the plagues added to your life. So I would suggest you not. But if you go symbolic, you're on thin ice, you're on dangerous ground. People will take the two witnesses and say they are the church. They're a picture of the church. I have a commentary I'm about ready to throw away. And it wasn't cheap. And it was highly recommended. But as I've read this, this guy keeps coming up with this wackadoodle stuff. 
You know, saying that the two witnesses are are the suffering church. And this is the church. And so, in verse 12, when they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here, that's the rapture. See, it's happening right there. And the two witnesses are the church. The problem is, they put the sounding of the seventh trumpet, and they put the two witnesses in there saying, they are the church. And they put one and one together, and they get seven, or six, or five. They don't get the right answer. It's faulty addition here. This is not the rapture. For one thing, these two witnesses, if they were supposed to be the church, they look awfully Hebrew. I mean, we're looking at a Moses and an Elijah, if I've ever seen them, not the church. Both pre-church. Not to mention the fact that if you're following it at all chronologically, which again, if you're symbolic, you can throw it anywhere, but if you're following the chronology of this, they are caught up before or at the end of the second woe, before the seventh trumpet sounds. So it's rapture and then trumpet sound. Well, that doesn't work either, does it? I could go further into this. In fact, I had a page of notes that I just tore out and threw away because it it doesn't matter. This is not the rapture of the church. We've talked about that. And I take it literally and I follow the flow. And again, you don't see the church during the tribulation. Oh, oh, you may tonight. I'll show you. But no, the seventh trumpet is not about the recall of ambassadors. The seventh trumpet is about the coronation of the king. I'm going to give you four things or so to jot down tonight. And that's the first one. The coronation of the king. That's really what we're looking at. Coronation time. Revelation eleven fifteen. the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. It's coronation time. Kingdom is Basileia, where we get the word basilica. But Basileia is in the singular. So note this, the singular kingdom of the world. Just one kingdom. Not a bunch of kingdoms, but just one. There are many nations. We see that back again in verse 2. The ethnos, the nations, that's in the plural. Many nations in the world, but one kingdom under one appropriating, usurping authority that is completely demonic. We see him offering Nations and kingdoms to Jesus in Matthew 4 verse 8 the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to him all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me and the thing is they were his to give he was in charge he had control I wonder sometimes, when are we going to wake up and realize we're in the fight of our lives? Not not the fight for our lives. Jesus died for our lives. But we're in the fight of our lives against an enemy when we shake our heads, when we say, what is going on in the world? It's under the kingdom authority of Satan. What do you expect? What do we think this world is going to look like? When things go wrong, when people do evil, when wickedness flourishes, when violence is on the surge, what do we think? Oh, but mankind is basically good. (laughs) The world has been usurped. 
Which is why Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6.12, but against the rulers, against the powers, and note this phrase, against the world forces of this darkness. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We read that verse and typically we go straight to the heavenlies and to the spiritual, and we miss that line. We are in the fight of our lives against the world forces of this darkness. The world forces. There is one kingdom in this world, many nations, one kingdom under the authority of the devil right now. Again, an authority that's been usurped, an authority that has been ripped off, that was originally given to Adam and Eve in the garden to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, but they handed it over. They sinned and the authority was taken. You might ask, well, then how do believers cope much less fight in this kingdom of darkness. Simple. You do what Jesus did. He answered the devil. Matthew chapter 4 verse 10 and said, Go Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. That's how you win. You worship the Lord. You serve the Lord. You do things the Lord's way, not the world's way. Jesus said in John 12, 31, Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Not yet. This is coronation time. Here comes the kingdom. Here comes The king, the kingdom of the world, that singular basileia of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of the Christ. Now I want you to just think through this with me. Let's stay in this place of coronation for a bit. This is what the ancient prophets declared. This is what was promised. So even as all the bad things and the wickedness in the world has gone down over the centuries, truly over the centuries, we have also heard the good word of the coming kingdom, of the promise that it's going to be overturned, that the kingdom will come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus prayed. Ezekiel prophesied this. Daniel told of this coming kingdom. Zechariah talked about it among many other prophets. But there's one Hebrew passage that is outstanding among them all. Turn back to the second psalm. The second psalm. A prophetic passage David wrote. A remarkable explanation, picture of the coronation that we're seeing break out in Revelation 11. Psalm 2. Follow along as I read us through it. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar? Two things to note right there in that first verse. Nations is goyim. 
It's the Gentiles. It's the Goy. If you've ever heard a Jewish person refer to people as Goy, he's such a Goy. Well, that's Gentile. And it's kind of a, a slur against non-Jewish folk. But here, the Goyim, the nations, why are they in an uproar? An uproar is an important word to note. It's ragash in the Hebrew, and the word means rage. Why are the nations in a rage? And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together. Against who? Against the Lord and against His anointed. His Mashiach. Saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, he who sits in heaven or in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. This laughter we've talked about before is a laughter of incredulity. It's a laughter of, I can't even believe they're saying this. Uh, You've got to be kidding me. You're going to cast away my fetters. You're going to undo my cords. You think that I'm here to bind you up. I've come to free you. You think you're smarter than I am? You think you're going to fight the Creator? The Lord in heaven laughs. And then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. We've pointed this out many times, but that is the resurrection that's being referred to right there. The day of the begottenness of Jesus is the resurrection of Jesus, not the birth of Jesus. He's already God in the flesh. He's already the Son. But this is the begottenness was in His resurrection. And you can check that out in Acts chapter 13, verse 33. Just jot that down and look it up later. Ask of me, Father now says to the begotten Son. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. We saw this quoted in Revelation 2.27. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges or leaders of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. And I like verse 12. Do homage to the Son. Do homage? Literally in the Hebrew, kiss. Kiss the son. This would be like one approaching a monarch, approaching a king and bending down and kissing the ring or kissing the hand in obeisance and in worship. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him 3,000 years ago. David wrote that. 2,000 years ago, back in Revelation 11, John saw this. We're reading it right now. And yet it is still to come. The kingdom is coming. The reason I point this out, 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago in the Revelation, and we're still talking about it today, this is our blessed assurance. Blessed assurance in Jesus Christ. What a foretaste of glory divine. Amen? 
as we look at the kingdom and we consider the kingdom is coming and this world can break apart in wickedness, but I know the kingdom is coming. I have been assured of this. We have again and again. And listen to Jesus on the matter of His anointing. Psalm 2, talking about the anointed one, the prophecy of the coming kingdom. That God declared this would happen. His Mashiach, His anointed one. And now, skip ahead to Isaiah 61. It's about halfway in your scriptures. Isaiah 61. Which has become one of the, I don't know, top ten most quoted passages, I think, at the bridge. We go here a lot. We have to. These are Jesus' words. Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, giving these words to Isaiah, and then spoken by Jesus later on, as we'll talk about. But Isaiah 61, verse 1, He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has, here's the word, anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. And He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that He may be glorified. It was Shabbat in Nazareth. When Jesus, the hometown boy, he had already been out and about. Word was already spreading about Jesus throughout the Galilee. And that word had reached home. People in Nazareth were hearing, what, Yeshua? Are you kidding? What are they saying? What's he doing? So things were already stirring. And Jesus comes into the synagogue. We're told it was his custom to do so. Jesus went to church. Comes into the synagogue on Shabbat. And he stood up to read. Well, now he's an itinerant but visiting rabbi. So this was a typical thing. He stands up to read and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. And he read the prophecy that we just read, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, halfway through 2. He stops. And now in Luke chapter 4, verse 20, it says he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Fulfilled? Consummated. Accomplished. This is it. Here I am. Amazing, because the people begin to look around. Verse 22 says, All were speaking well of him, and wondering if the gracious words which were falling from his lips... And then they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Jesus looks around, and I'm convinced at this moment, after sharing Isaiah 61 and saying, fulfilled. As he's looking at the people, he recognizes, and I think we might even recognize what was going on. Speaking well of him, hey, Jesus is here, hand him the scroll. Yeah, let's hear from from our boy. And he reads, and then he applies the prophecy to himself, and the whispers have already begun. What? What's he saying? Did you hear what he said? Who does he think he is? Someone's scowling over in this corner. And someone's upset over in this corner. And people are starting to look at Jesus because he says, 
No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever was heard, we heard was done at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. He's one step ahead of them. He knows they're going to say, well, do a miracle or something. If you did it in Capernaum, do it here. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And now you can just get a sense that there's a rumbling in the crowd as he says, But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in Zidon to a woman who was a widow, a goy, a Gentile. Oh, how come he brings up this one embarrassing moment in the story of Elijah? Well, Jesus doesn't stop there. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Another goy? What is he saying? And note this verse 28, Luke chapter 4. All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. Why do the nations rage? Why does Israel, Jewish people now in the synagogue, they're filled with rage. They heard these things. They got up. They drove him out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill. Some of you have stood on the brow of that hill. It's pretty high. It's not just a little bump. Cheryl doesn't like when I stand near the edge of this hill. At the edge of Nazareth, Mount Precipice, they call it. They let him out in order to throw him down the cliff because that's what you did to a blasphemer. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Why do I share this? Gang, it's not just the nations who rage. Jesus' hometown was raging as well. And as we open up, as we consider the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He will reign forever and ever, I ask the question, because it's raised in Psalm 2, why do the people rage rather than revere? Why do they hate instead of herald the Christ? And the answer is very simple. Because He is the Christ. They hate Him because He is the Anointed One. They rage against Him because He is Mashiach. Anoint in the Hebrew, the word anoint is Mashach. Anointed One, Mashiach. Uh, The word in the Greek, to anoint is Krio, where we get Christ or Christos. Now in the Hebrew Scriptures, The anointed one. To be anointed, there were three reasons for it, really. Three anointings that would take place among the Jewish people for a specific reason. And the first was the anointing of the prophet. 1 Kings 19, verse 16, the Lord said to Elijah, Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholot, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Or Psalm 105.15, do not touch my anointed ones, do not, and do my prophets no harm. So the prophets were considered anointed ones. And to become a prophet, you would receive an anointing from the Lord. There would be an anointing of oil representing the anointing of the Spirit of the Lord, which would be upon the prophet. Well, it wasn't just prophets. Priests were also anointed. Exodus 40, verse 13, You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him, that he may minister as a priest to me. 
And, Exodus 40, verse 15, you shall anoint his sons, even as you have anointed their father, that they may minister as priests to me, and their anointing will qualify them for a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. So, prophets were anointed, and priests were anointed, and you know the third one. Kings. The kings were always anointed as they ascended to the throne, or at least they were supposed to be. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, we see Samuel. He takes a horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. That's little David. The most unexpected of all the brothers, of the sons of Jesse. It wasn't the good-looking ones. He wasn't the tall. He wasn't the buff. He was the little ruddy shepherd boy. Wasn't even invited to the party. Out in the fields with the sheep. Go get David. I guess it's none of these other guys. And he comes in and Samuel anoints him. And we're told the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, anointed as king. And Jesus Christ is all three. He is anointed prophet. He is anointed priest. And He is anointed king. All part of the coronation process. If you're going to coronate the Christ, understand He is prophet, He is priest, He is king. Remember the gifts of the Magi speak of this. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Take them in the reverse order. They all speak of his anointing. Myrrh for the anointed prophet. Jesus, the anointed prophet, given a gift of myrrh, even at his birth. Now, we like to talk about how Jesus was anointed and came as a fulfillment of prophecy. In fact, you've probably heard, he fulfilled over 300 prophecies. In his life, in his first coming. 300 prophecies of the Hebrew scriptures, of the Jewish prophets, that he fulfilled just in living his life, just in going where he went, and and being born where he was, and dying how he died, over 300. We love to point at that, but you know what? Don't forget, Jesus also spoke prophetically. In fact, a vast majority of the teaching of Christ was prophecy. He was an anointed the prophet, as he walked on the earth, Deuteronomy 18.15, prophesied that the prophet would come. The Lord your God, Moses said, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. The prophecy of the prophet. Jesus gives some of the most specific and detailed end times prophecies of any biblical prophet. <clears throat> And he was recognized as being prophetic and being prophetically sound. In fact, an early church father, Origen, of questionable uh, theology, but he, he quoted a guy named Flagan. How'd you like to have a name like Flagan? I think you'd have to have a head cold just to explain your name. Flagan was a Greek writer born in 80 AD. 80, 80 AD. That's kind of cool. He lived to the mid-100s, and so early on, this Greek writer not only ascribed to Jesus a knowledge of future events, but Origen writes, also testified that the result corresponded to the predictions. So here's a non-Jew, non-Christian guy, Flagan, who said, yeah, this Jesus predicted all kinds of things that came true, prophet. And note some of these in the Scripture, because Jesus didn't just prophesy about eschatological things, things of the end, things that we're still studying and looking at and waiting for to happen. Jesus prophesied about things in the immediate 
said things that happened right then and there. Peter asked Jesus about paying the temple tax. They came into Capernaum and, and they were bugging Peter. Hey, have you and your, you and your master, you and your rabbi there paid the temple tax? It's the uh, half shekel temple tax. And so Jesus told Peter in Matthew 17, 27, go to the sea, throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. You've got to be kidding me. And you know what? what you want a picture of great faith? Peter did it. <laughs> I mean, if Jesus told me to go fishing and get, a, get my taxes paid for, I'd be like, what? But he did it. Jesus said to a fruitless fig tree in Jerusalem, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples, the Bible tells us, overheard him. That's another one of those moments. Did you hear what he said? Yeah, he just cursed it. He must be hungry. He just cursed a tree. Mark 11, verse 20, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And if I was Jesus, I would have said, remember the coin in the fish's mouth? (laughs) Instead, Jesus just said, have faith in God. He sent Peter and John to prepare for the Passover. In Luke chapter 22, verse 10, he says, When you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters, and you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I, miss, in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. It's so matter of fact. But it was prophecy. And we're told in Luke twenty two thirteen they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when you read that, you might think, wow, how did he know this guy was going to have a house and have it ready for them? And that the, the master, how did he even know who the master was? Well, the answer to that's easy. He probably talked to the guy ahead of time. That's not prophetic. What's prophetic? Well, it's prophetic that he says, when you enter the city at that exact moment, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, and they did not have Google Maps. (laughs) Or find friends. He had no way of knowing when this guy with the pitcher of water was going to... He said, this is what's going to happen. And it happened. Jesus the prophet. He prophesied that Peter would deny him exactly three times, and he did. He prophesied that the the church would be born and would thrive, Matthew 16, and it did. He said Jerusalem would fall, Matthew 24, Luke 19, Mark 13, and it did. My point is, Jesus was a proven prophet. That what we believe that He has told us is coming in the long term, we can believe because in the short term, He has proven the anointed prophet. You see, Deuteronomy 18.21, the Lord says, You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. Right there, God set a standard for prophecy. Someone comes along and claims to be a prophet of the Lord and begins to foretell things, begins to predict things. If anything in the media doesn't come true, guess what? Not a prophet. Be careful with your foretelling. But if it comes true, 
and continues to come true. And you see this with all the Old Testament prophets. They would prophesy something that would happen in a week or a year or a decade. And it would happen. And because that happened, then the people could know, we can trust this. This guy knows what he's talking about. This guy is proven. John chapter 6, verse 14 says of Jesus, when the people saw the sign which He had performed, that is the the feeding of the 5,000, they said, this is truly the prophet who's come into the world. Because there's evidence there they could see. And so God set up this verification process by which the prophet could be measured and it's the fulfillment of immediate prophecies that validated future prophecies. Jesus is the anointed prophet given as a little boy, probably one, two years old, in a house in Bethlehem. The wise men came and they gave him myrrh, myrrh for a prophet. Wait, why? Why myrrh for a prophet? Well, you Bible students know myrrh is a burial spice, right? So why a burial spice for a prophet? What's prof- Jesus prophesied explicitly of his own impending death exactly how it would happen, when it would happen. Matthew 20, verse 17, as He was about to go up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way He said to them, and listen how explicit this is, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. Check. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. Check. And they will condemn Him to death. Check. And they will hand Him over to the Gentiles. Pilate et al. Check. To mock and scourge and crucify Him. Check, check, check. And on the third day He will be raised up. Big check. Jesus prophesied this. That's why myrrh for a prophet. Myrrh for the anointed prophet. But He was also given frankincense as the anointed priest. Hebrews 9.11 When Christ appeared, high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. I can say a lot more about the priest, but we've seen a lot of the priestly nature of Jesus. So you've got myrrh for the anointed prophet. That's Jesus. And of course, frankincense for the anointed priest. Well, that's Jesus. Anointed as prophet. Anointed as priest. And people people are attracted to prophets. Intrigued by, or at least curious about prophets. Uh, People can appreciate a priest. Honor a priest to some degree. But here's where we get back to answering the question, why do the nations rage? Why did Jesus' own hometown rage against the anointed? Because He's also the anointed King. And a king must be obeyed. You don't have to obey a prophet. You listen to what he says and take it with a grain of salt. You don't have to obey a priest or a pastor. Just go to another church. But a king, a king you are expected to obey and he was given gold for the anointed king. Revelation 17 verse 14 says he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. In the passage tonight before us, what we are looking at here is the coronation of the anointed king. 
Yes, he's prophet. Yes, he is priest. But he's king, and that's where the world has trouble with him. He has the authority. He has the power. He has the right to command and to expect obedience. And we don't like to obey. But this is the coronation of the anointed king again. The seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven. Where are we? Note that. Where are we? In heaven. At this point in the revelation, I know it doesn't feel like heaven here, but we're in, in the study. So follow that. Always be aware of where you are in the revelation. John is now back in heaven. He was one verse before in Jerusalem on the earth. So now he's back in heaven. And the loud voices are sounding in heaven. Multiple voices singing, sounding out. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. And again, that sounds so conclusive. The kingdom has become the kingdom. The the world's kingdom's fallen. Christ's kingdom is here. But we're still at the midpoint. So how does this work technically? Honestly, several things in this chapter seem incredibly conclusive. But hold that thought and we'll come back to it because before we get there, first we hear the celebration of his subjects. The coronation of the anointed king, number two, the celebration of his subjects, verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. And note again, we are in heaven and understand John back to the heavenly scene. Here's the 24 worshiping. Now we did a whole teaching on this several weeks ago back in chapter 4 about the 24 and I explained to you why I believe the 24 is the church. That there is a representation going on there. Now, I wouldn't stake my salvation on it. It's not a salvation issue, but I believe the 24 is the church for multiple reasons that I gave back in that teaching. So if you're not sure about that, you can go back and listen and then we can have dialogue about it. But this is, if in fact, this is the church. This is the only glimpse of the church during the tribulation. But not on earth. Not on earth. In heaven. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus says, that where I am, there you may be also. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. So the church is with Jesus in heaven, praising Him, now celebrating as His subjects, worshiping Him during the tribulation going on on earth, but we're before Jesus in heaven. And when people say, hey, if we're there during the tribulation, will we be able to watch it all coming down on earth? I don't know. I don't think we're going to want to. I think we're going to be able to watch Jesus. I think we're going to be so enamored of the King and so full of thanksgiving and joy and worship of being in the presence of Jesus, that seven years is going to go by like that. That's going to be one quick honeymoon. We're going to be focused on Him, thinking about Him, worshiping Him, as in verse 17, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty. This is a third of nine times He is called the Almighty in Revelation. O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Now we've seen a similar 
title given to the Lord back in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation chapter 4 verse 8, where the four living creatures do not cease to say, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And here we see them saying, O Lord God, we give thanks who are and who were. Which is missing something. Now, if you're reading a King James translation, you would say, no, Rick, my translation says who is to come. Yeah, that's because the King James translators put it back in. Because they felt like the phrase was wonky without it. I don't know if wonky is an Elizabethan word, but that's what they were thinking. Back then, we have three verses, who was and who is and who is to come, and then all of a sudden, we get who were and who are and nothing else. So we need to shove that back in there. And it's not really adding to Revelation because it's already there in an earlier place. Note this, it's really important. Why not? Why not giving thanks to Him who are and who were and who are to come? Because He's coming. Because in Revelation 1, 4, 1, 8, 4, 8, He he was to come. That was all pre. That was pre, right at the beginning of the church age, pre-tribulation, if you will. Pre all of these things. And at that point... Even when John was writing, he he is to come. And we could even say here tonight, he is to come. But at this point, in the tribulation, at this midpoint, at this coronation of the king, he is coming. He's in the taxi, on the interstate, rocking down the highway. Jesus is on the way. That's the point that's being gotten at here is this coronation is rolling and it's the called and chosen and faithful subjects who are just singing out a hymn of gratitude to the coronated king. They're just worshiping him. They're thankful to him. Reminds me to a degree of Psalm 100. I won't read the whole psalm, but just verses 3 and 4. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. We are His people. And the sheep of His pasture enter His gates with thanksgiving. His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. And I love the juxtaposition of verse 3 and verse 4 in Psalm 100. Because in verse 3 He says, We are His sheep. And in verse 4 He says, Enter His gates with thanksgiving. Isn't that great? Do you know why that's great? Do you remember why? We've talked about it. It's great because normally the sheep entering the gates were going to the slaughter. We are entering His gates with thanksgiving because Jesus, the little lamb slain, already went to the slaughter. So we can come into the temple courts not to be slaughtered, not to be sacrificed, but to give praise and honor and thanksgiving to show gratitude. Are you, are you thankful to Him? Are you thankful to the anointed king? Now I'm partially asking that for every one of us sitting in here tonight to stop and think for a moment. We got in the car. We're heading out of town yesterday. Cheryl and I went down to see a movie. And um, as we're driving, we got in the car. We weren't like 20 seconds down the road. And Cheryl said, now, you are not allowed to complain tonight. (laughs) 
I'm looking around for someone else. There must have been some, one of the kids must be in the back of the car that she's talking to because it couldn't possibly be me. You're not allowed to complain tonight. I'm like, am I complaining? I'm not. Tagged. Seriously tagged. Cheryl knows when we haven't talked all day long and we get in the car, first thing I do is I start to bleh. So, are you thankful? I had to stop and think about this this week. Am I, am I thankful to my anointed king? Is it thanksgiving that comes out of my lips and from my heart? Or is it complaint? Am I frustrated? Am I not getting what I think I deserve? Be real careful, by the way, about asking to get what you deserve. <laughs> am I thankful... The rebel heart is not thankful. The rebel heart rages. The rebel heart is wary of Jesus. This is a good litmus test for you and for me tonight. Am I wary of Jesus? Do I find myself doubting Jesus? Questioning Jesus? Mistrusting Jesus? Complaining to Jesus about the life that I'm having to live right now? This is not what I wanted, Lord. I am not in the position that I thought I would be. I have prayed about this and you have not answered me. You haven't responded to me, Lord. Really? Boy, if we could stop and hear ourselves. Raging against the Lord rather than giving thanks. Are you thankful that God rules your life? Or are you pushing back? Are you kicking against his gentle prodding and his nudging? That's what Saul was doing. Saul wasn't thankful. Saul was on a rage. Saul was tearing it up. Killing Christians in the name of his God. Or so he thought. In the proof of his self-righteousness. And so he marched down the road to Damascus until Jesus stopped him in his tracks. Saul. Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Acts 26, 14. And then he adds this. It's one of my favorite things Jesus ever said to Paul. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads, cattle prods. I've been prodding you, Saul, and you've been pushing back. And it's getting harder and harder, isn't it, Saul? Isn't it getting tough? Listen, you can live that way. I can live that way. Even as followers of Jesus, we can push back. He's given us the freedom to do it. We don't deserve to, but we can. You can defy Him. You can dissent. You can rage. You can resist. Resist. By the way, Democrat or Republican, MAGA lover or Trump hater, or never Trumper, Do you understand as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, that resisting is unbiblical? To resist the governing authorities that God has set in place is not okay? And that went for the previous administration as well as this one? Resist! Hey, if I'm resisting God, if I'm pushing back against God, if I'm kicking against the goads, guess what? I'm going to end up frustrated. And I'm just going to stay frustrated. (laughs) Tell me to do that. I'm going to do that. (laughs) And frustration will turn to rage. Paul, well, he became Paul. Saul, who was raging against God, got spun around 
And you know what really changed in him, I think, more than anything else? Rage was replaced by thankfulness. Gratitude. As they say in the coronation, we give you thanks. I cannot, I cannot focus enough on this word thanks. On how important it is as followers of Jesus Christ that we be those who learn how to give thanks rather than doubt. And appreciation rather than mistrust. You can ask God all the questions you want. That's fine. He welcomes our questions. And if we're uncertain about something, that's okay. He's not afraid of, of our wonderings and our and even our misgivings. But if we allow ourselves to be run by our misgivings rather than by thanksgivings, we lose. And we end up raging. But listen to what Paul, now Paul, writes 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because He considered me Faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, a rager, you might say. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. And Paul is all the time saying, give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. Pray with an attitude of thanksgiving. Have gratitude in your heart. Why? Because gratitude will wash out your rage. It'll take away the frustration. Every time I stop and I say, thank you Jesus for the life that you've given me, I have peace. I find joy. I'm not stressed out. I'm not upset about what I don't have and the things that I think I need. I'm just thankful for what He's done. And you know when you get into that place of thankfulness, you start to realize, I've got so much more than anything I deserve. I am so blessed. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. So in heaven, back in Revelation 11, there's coronation taking place. And celebration in the coronation. Meanwhile, back on the earth, verse 18, and the nations were enraged. Enraged. They're just coming apart. Coronation, celebration, well this is number three in our notes, conniption. This is the conniption of the rebellious. Which is always the opposite of heavenly thanksgiving. To be enraged. The word is... Orgistheson in the Greek, and it literally is anger provoked, anger stirred up. Aristotle said this Greek word, this kind of anger, is desire mixed with grief. That's interesting. You might say passionate anguish or fuming misery. And it's where a person lands who cannot give thanksgiving to Christ as our King. The nations here are now enraged. They're raging. Why? Because they're losing control. Because power is being stripped. Authority is being removed. And when power is stripped from the prideful, when authority is ripped from the authoritarian, the result is always rage. And they're doing exactly what the God of this world, the ruler of this world, is doing himself. If you just look ahead, preview, chapter 12, verse 17, the dragon was what? What does it say? Enraged. The world is enraged. The kingdom of Jesus is coming. We see him. The the kingdom. We've lost it. 
They're enraged. The dragon is enraged with the woman, that's Israel, and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Oh, I can't wait to talk about that. Proverbs 19 verse 3 says, The foolishness of man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. So again, is it thanksgiving or is it rage? Which is it between you and the Lord? This is rage against the anointed one. Again, not because he's a prophet. They're cool. You know, they're interesting. Not because he's a priest. I can respect that. But because he's the king, the world, the nations are enraged. And verse 18 continues, your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged. And the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great. And to destroy those who destroy the earth. Let me just deal with that last thing. To destroy those who destroy the earth. Who are those who destroy the earth? And I share with our staff today, I don't think mankind is smart enough to do it. Uh, we could nuke ourselves. We could wipe out our, you know, humanity. We're dumb enough to do that. But I don't think we could take apart this world. There's only one who can do that. It's the Lord. But there are those who try, who are trying to destroy the world. Those who would destroy the earth. Hey, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And his his primary right arm guy is Abaddon, Apollyon, destroyer. An antichrist will be a destroyer. And so the nations are raging here along with the destroyers who would destroy the earth and Satan would destroy the earth if given the opportunity to. I don't even know that Satan is strong enough actually to do it. But he's leading out here. There's a word play that's interesting at the beginning of verse 18. The nations were enraged and your wrath came. The word play here is that enraged, as I already told you, is orgistesan. And it's the verb form of the same word that is the noun form, which is orge, which is wrath. So the nations were orgistesan, and your orge, your wrath, came. And what John is doing here is he sets one word against the other, is the rage of humanity is an impotent verb, whereas the wrath of God is an omnipotent noun. The wrath of God is a thing that's going to happen that can't be stopped. The rage of the world is just a verb. There's nothing to it. It's empty. But again, I read verse 18 and I see the nations raging. I see your wrath came. I see the time for the dead to be judged. I thought that was at the end of chapter 20. I read ahead. And time to reward your bond service, the prophets and the saints, and the small and the great, and to destroy. This all just sounds like the very end of the end. What's going on here? We've got 42 months to go. Number four in our notes. The conclusion of the world. The conclusion of the world. Now, my kids tell me to get really excited about something is to geek out. So let me Greek out for just a second here. Some Greek words. And to understand what's going on here, to, to comprehend in this whole coronation of these several verses here, there's something you've got to see. And if you were a Greek scholar, you would see it immediately. If you were a Greek hack, like your pastor, you would figure it out eventually. If you just listen, check it out. This 
passage in the coronation is bursting with errorist verb tenses. Errorist. If you jot it down in your notes, it's A-O-R-I-S-T. And it's a verb tense in the Greek. There's perfect and pluperfect. And there are different verb tenses in the Greek. And this is errorist. And it is all over the passage. Almost every single verb in the passage is in the errorist form. Check this out. Verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of Christ. Errorist. They fell, verse 16, on their faces and worshipped God. Errorist, errorist. Verse 17, have begun to reign. Errorist. Verse 18, were enraged. Errorist. Your wrath came. Errorist. The time came to judge, to reward, to destroy. Errorist, errorist, errorist. It's all over the place. That being said, what does that mean? The errorist verb tense is an unqualified past tense. Meaning, it's past tense, but it has no duration or completion in the action. It's something that's underway. It's something that's begun. What we might say there in verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become, the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ has become His errorist. What it could translate is the kingdom of this world is becoming. Or, even better, has begun to be becoming. The kingdom of this world has begun to be becoming the kingdom... Uh, you know what it's like? Southerners are always saying, I'm fixing to get ready to do something. <laughs> I just realized today, they're all in the errorist tense. They're speaking Greek and they didn't even know it. I'm fixing to get ready. That's errorist. And that's what is being described here. This coronation is a coronation of the kingdom becoming. The kingdom begun to become. Like, well, like us. If you're born again, you are in process. You've begun to become what you're going to be. What we are right now, we, we don't know. But when we see Him, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. And right now, we are becoming. You know the old t-shirt, God isn't finished with me yet. So true! We are sons and daughters in process. We are... Citizens becoming of a kingdom that has begun to become. And at this midpoint of the tribulation, that's what's going on. That's why I said he's in the taxi. You know, he's on the highway. It's rolling. This is now unstoppable. The kingdom has begun to become. And what's interesting to me, before we finish out tonight, there are three demonstrations of coronation in the Revelation. Three times where we see a coronation of the Christ in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the first one is a pre-tribulation coronation. Jot these down. Three things. A pre-tribulation coronation. If you go back to Revelation chapter 5 verse 9, they sing a new song. Saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and we will reign upon the earth. That sounds like coronation. 
But skip on down, verse 12, they're saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That sounds like coronation. But continuing on in verse 13, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. That's coronation. This is a pre-tribulation coronation. And my friends, it is a priestly coronation. Well, how so? Because it's the coronation of the little lamb slain. Of both the high priest and the sacrifice, all wrapped up in one, Jesus Christ. And, and so it, it's, it's just a, if saying, the coronation has begun, the little lamb. The, the priestly coronation, right there in Revelation chapter 5. And then the second coronation comes right here at the midpoint in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Second coronation in the Revelation, and it is a prophetic coronation. Because, as I said, the kingdom of the world is becoming, is begun to be becoming the kingdom of Christ. So for those awaiting the king at the midpoint of the tribulation, for those reading these things and studying them, and by the way, I... I believe people are going to be pouring over the book of Revelation when all this is coming down on earth. Which is why we're not bringing our Bibles with us. We're going to leave them behind so folks can grab them and read them. And study them. And take lots of good notes so you can help people understand what's there. But this is now at the midpoint and what we see is a prophetic coronation. Priestly coronation, the little lamb slain in chapter 5. And now in chapter 11, a prophetic coronation for those who are awaiting the king. As if he's saying, hang in there, he's near. For those who are rebelling against the king in rage, it's as though he's saying, beware, he's near. But the third coronation is post-tribulation. Isn't that cool? you got a pre-tribulation, a mid-tribulation, and a post-tribulation coronation. So it doesn't matter if you're pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, all three get a coronation. And this final coronation is the coming of Jesus. Revelation 19, verses 1 through 6. And it is a kingly coronation. We're not going to read it tonight because we're going to save it. We'll get there. But there's a fourfold hallelujah to the king as he returns to rule and reign, as he plants his feet on planet earth for the kingdom. Three coronations for Jesus Christ. A priestly coronation, a prophetic coronation, and a royal kingly coronation all in the revelation. Remember, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so tonight what we read, what we study here, is that middle coronation, that prophetic coronation. Things are underway, things are rolling, things are happening. As we'll find out in chapter 12, part of the reason that there's just this breakout of joy, and it will be repeated in chapter 12, is Satan is out. His access is fully denied at this midpoint. He's gone. And all heaven just breaks loose with the cheer. You ever seen the movie A Bug's Life? How many people have seen A Bug's Life? I've just got to to see if this is even worth sharing. Okay, so you know when... What's the little ant's name? Who's who's kind of a, a... Flick. Flick, yes. When Flick leaves the ant colony to go out searching, and as he goes over the crest of the hill, he hears a huge cheer behind him. You know, that, that scene. And they're all cheering because 
flicks out of there. He thinks they're cheering because he's their hero, but he has no idea. That's what we're talking about is happening here. It's breaking out in heaven. The praise, the joy, the wonder, because Satan's out. No more access. No more accusations. No more annoying Satan. He's gone at this coronation of Christ who is the King and who is the prophet and who is the priest. And I want to show you one more thing. Turn back to Matthew 22. This is another one of those passages I realize I go to a lot. I know because I've got a thumbprint here. But it's just, it's such a fascinating conversation. And Jesus and the Pharisees, and I love anytime Jesus shuts them up. So Matthew 22, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ, the Mashiach, the Anointed One? Remember, we're talking about His anointing. What do you think about the Anointed One? Whose son is He? And He knew what they'd say. And they said to Him, the son of David. It's a good Jewish answer. He said to them, verse 43, Then how does David, in the Spirit, call Him Lord? Saying, verse 44, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. That's Psalm 110. which is another coronation psalm. And Jesus says in verse 45, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Great question. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. <laughs> It's beautiful. I love Jesus' style. But Jesus in this, He confirms this profound connection between the Anointed One, the Mashiach, the Christos, and David. He's the son of David. Jesus doesn't deny that. Yes, He's the son of David, but He's also David's Lord. Explain that one to me. And they couldn't. But Jesus is pointing out something marvelous, the connection of Himself to David. And it's a huge connection throughout the Scriptures. Read Psalm 132. Solomon writes Psalm 132 about this connection. Don't do it right now. Just jot it down. But it's all over the Scriptures. The Son of David, and that through David, by David's seed, this eternal kingdom is going to be established, 2 Samuel 7. And again, over and over, we hear this connection, this Christos connection, Mashiach connection, to David the King. But you know what? There's even a coronation connection. What do you mean? Samuel anointed David. We already read the verse back in 1 Samuel 16. Comes along, he's going to anoint one of the sons of Jesse. First son comes up, he's a stud, it's got to be him. And the Lord says, nope. Second son, well, he's not quite a studly, but he's still studly. No, it's not him. Third, fourth, fifth, all the way down through all seven until they have to go get David out of the field. Samuel anoints him. He's a shepherd boy in Bethlehem. This is even before the whole Goliath incident. But he's anointed. Wait. David was anointed a second time. A decade later, as king over Judah in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4. But you know, David was anointed a third time, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3, when all Israel accepted and crowned him as king in Hebron. 
As with the three coronations of David, we see three coronations of Jesus Christ here in the Revelation. And listen to the words of his son Solomon. This is Psalm 132. There, that is in Zion, I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed, for my Mashiach. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. What we see at this end section of Revelation 11 is the coronation of Jesus. One of three, as David had three, so Jesus has three in this presentation of who he is in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Upon himself, his crown shall shine. You know what else is shining? Look at verse 19. Revelation eleven nineteen, And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this the ark? Is this the real ark? And, and does John see it? Is John seeing something right now that the whole world is going to see at the midpoint of the tribulation? Will the heavens be open and, and, and the temple of God in heaven open and the ark become visible at that time? And why is this considered, this whole section, part of the third woe? Those are great questions that we're going to talk about on Sunday. But I want to give you this much as we conclude. Here at the midpoint, think about what's happened. Think about where we are. Two witnesses were recently martyred. Brutally murdered, their bodies lying dead in the streets of Jerusalem until God resurrects them and raptures them in the sight of all the nations. Awesome. Antichrist has declared himself divine. The nations of the world are raging, and especially against the people of God. And at that point, in this moment, when all this is going on, John looks up. And he sees the ark. The ark. The ark of the covenant. This is, think about it, this is the the centerpiece of the kingdom. The ark. If you're a Jew, you're dialing down on what matters to Israel, what's important to the Jewish people, it's Jerusalem. But more than Jerusalem, it's the Temple Mount. But more than the Temple Mount, it's the Temple. But more than the Temple, it's the, the inner sanctuary. But more than that, it's the Holy of Holies. More than the Holy of Holies, it's the Ark. It's at the center of the kingdom. And John looks up. And in this moment of utter turmoil on the earth, the kingdom's coming. The kingdom is coming. Look to the kingdom. Look to the king. If you feel like raging, and you want to replace the raging with thanksgiving, look to the king. The king is coming. The kingdom is coming. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first two things, he said, his kingdom, because it's coming, and his righteousness, because that's who he is. Seek his kingdom that's coming Seek His righteousness because He's coming. Both are on the way. 
Hebrews 12.28 says, Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice with reverence and awe. And Father, we join the voices of the 24 elders in heaven saying, Thank You, Lord. Thank You. Thank You. We give thanksgiving and gratitude because Your kingdom is coming. Because the kingdom of the world will have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Anointed One. And Father, tonight, my sense is, Lord, and maybe, maybe Lord, it's just me, but maybe there's someone else here who, like me, needs to have a little bit more of the frustration or the grumpiness broken off and replaced by thanksgiving. Maybe there's someone here, Father, who's on the verge of a real rage. Just angry. Frustrated with you because they're not understanding what you're doing or why you're doing it. Why life is the way it is. Father, I, I pray that you will give us all, just for a moment, a glimpse of the ark. That is, a glimpse of the kingdom. Would you remind us... You got this. You're going to make it all work. Your plan will not fail. You will not be kept back from returning. And I just pray, Lord, that you would establish in us that that holy confidence where the kingdom of this world is, is a dark kingdom. Father, fill us with light, with your Holy Spirit. And with the absolute blessed assurance of the coming kingdom and Lord Jesus our King. And replace any frustration, any rage, any complaining. Lord, would you just replace it with thanksgiving. We thank you, Lord, for life. We thank you for fellowship. We thank you for things as simple as the food that we've been able to eat today and the vehicles that got us here tonight. We thank You for the clothing on our backs and the roof over our heads. We thank You, Father, that we have a place to sleep tonight and rest our heads. But more than all of the simple things, Father, we thank You for anointing Jesus as King. We thank You for the wisdom of calling for our obedience. We thank You that we can worship You. So Holy Spirit, would You, as we do worship You, settle over our spirits tonight and fill us with hearts of gratitude. In Jesus' name, Amen.